This episode of 1801 Live was originally recorded during a 12-hour podcast-a-thon streamed live on August 28th from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. The Give Black Podcast-a-thon benefited U of SC's One Creed, One Carolina campaign, which supports initiatives that elevate and encourage black students, faculty, and staff. Together, our five hosts and over 20 guests helped raise more than $10,000 for the campaign over 12 hours. Find more information on the podcast-a-thon and the link to donate at www.garnetmedia.org slash giveblack. All right, my next guest is Dr. Nicole Cook, and I will admit her in. She is a librarian, she has a PhD, um, and her big research area is on digital media literacy and social justice. So those are the themes of the 30-minute time slot. Hello. Hi. How are you? I'm good, how are you? Good, thank you so much for coming on and speaking with us. I know we had a quick switch around to where uh, we had the pleasure of you joining us last minute, but thank you for agreeing and um, allowing us to speak with you. Sure, it's a pleasure to be here. So I just wanted to start by, um, I know that you have a lot of roles that you have taken over the past years, but starting with um, your research, so if you can talk to us a little bit more about your research, I know you have two big uh, platforms, whether it's digital media literacy and social justice, but how, all the knowledge that you have built over the years about that and then how they intersect, if they intersect in many ways. Yeah, so um, I am in the School of Information Science, which is uh, part of the College of Information and Communications. So I am the Augusta Baker Endowed Chair. I'm also an associate professor. So uh, as you mentioned, um, just starting my second year. So my two main areas, and I'm very fortunate that I have the ability to combine my research areas along with my teaching areas, um, are social justice, uh, equity, diversity, and inclusion. Uh, And then I also do a lot of work with uh, fake news, misinformation, disinformation. Um, And so, you know, just to kind of back up a little bit. So I'm in the school where the graduate students who want to pursue library and information science uh, in different uh, types of information professions. Um, And I was a librarian for many years uh, before I became a faculty member. And so really the same as they were when I was uh, actually working as a librarian. These are the things that I would work with faculty about. These are the things that, you know, maybe if I went to a conference, these were my personal interests. And so I teach a suite of courses uh, at the iSchool as we're known. And uh, in this past spring, I taught diversity in libraries. Um, And just, you know, I'm I'm not sure if you ladies know, uh, librarianship is uh, very white and very female, uh, upwards of like 85%. And so, you know, we have uh, over and over these conversations about we have to diversify the profession because our profession doesn't reflect the communities that we serve. And so this is really, you know, my uh, core mission is to better prepare uh, these folks going out into communities to better reflect uh, and better serve 
these diverse communities. And so uh, to continue with that, uh, this semester I'm actually teaching critical cultural information studies. And so we just dig deeper into those uh, critical issues and really just talk about how uh, the world impacts the field that we're in. So, you know, unfortunately, there's no shortage of examples. So, you know, this semester, we will talk about Jacob Blake, and we will talk about George Floyd and talk about, you know, what that means for you uh, as someone who serves their community, right? Uh, the work that we do is not strictly transactional, you are dealing with human beings. Um, and then the other class that I'm teaching this semester is uh, social justice storytelling. And so um, the namesake of my position, Augusta Baker, was a legendary librarian, but also a master storyteller. And so this class is meant to hopefully extend uh, her legacy. And we're really talking about personal narratives and um, listening to some of your previous guests um, who say that they're telling their stories. This is the type of storytelling uh, that I'm talking about. Uh, and then my other area is misinformation, disinformation, fake news, as you mentioned, uh, media literacy, et cetera. And so also last spring taught a class um, on fake news. Spring 2021, uh, uh, co-teach a class on news literacy. And again, unfortunately, we have no shortage of uh, examples and things to kind of work through uh, with the presidential campaign, uh, with COVID, there's, you know, just rampant misinformation. Um, and, you know, to address that last point of your question, they, they, they do intersect. They don't always intersect, but the part that I concentrate on is really racialized misinformation and disinformation. Um, and we're seeing it now um, with the, the kid who shot the protesters uh, in Kenosha, you know, he was an aspiring policeman, but, you know, if it was Trayvon Martin or if it was Michael Brown, you know, they were some type of thug or they had uh, drugs in their system. And so even how the media portrays that really feeds into that racialized misinformation and disinformation that really just perpetuates the stereotypes and unfortunately keeps that, that cycle going about how we're um, addressed in the media and how, you know, how we're addressed uh, in real life. That's amazing. And I know that you were speaking on in your classes, you talk about a lot of personal narratives or unpack a lot of personal narratives. But I would love to hear, do you have a favorite? Is there one that always comes to mind that you love to share? Uh, yeah, there's um, one or two. The one, um, the personal story that I tell um, to my students the most, um, because I do want them to know that you know, I'm expecting them to take risks and to be vulnerable. And so I have to give that back to them. Um, and so a lot of times they'll say, well, you know, how did you get into this? This is not necessarily, you know, the most common path for a librarian to go get their PhD and then go teach in a library school and, and kind of do that academic route. Um, and, you know, just having dealt with, um, my first teaching job was uh, at the University of Illinois. So I was in the Midwest. Um, and I had a lot of students um, who had never had a professor or a teacher of color uh, in their entire, you know, uh, school career. And so, you know, like I said, graduate school. So we're talking about, you know, folks who've been in school for quite some time and have never seen anyone in the front of the classroom that didn't look like them. And so I had uh, one uh, older white woman who was in my class and she was uh, pursuing her graduate degree. And she just was not 
happy that I could grade her papers or that I could, you know, um, that I knew more than she did. And so she would continually just interrupt me and, you know, with these snarky comments and, and things of that nature. And, you know, uh, one day I had just had enough. Um, and so she asked me a question. I answered her. And then she came back and said, oh, well, that was a really good answer. Um, and so I stopped the class and I said, you know, do you think that I wouldn't give you a good answer? And so just, you know, that was the beginning of a lot of things for me uh, as an educator, um, but even as a person, right? So for me, that was really risky. You know, I was always like very painfully shy as a kid and all of these things. And so not only did I get her to kind of um, settle down, if you will, um, that's how I really got into teaching uh, equity, diversity, and inclusion. Um, because the school that I was at at that time did not have classes in this area. And I felt like we were really doing the students a disservice. I felt like if this woman could not deal with me, she was never going to be able to deal with the diverse populations and communities um, that we serve. And so, you know, that set me on that path for teaching and research, but it also set me on a parallel path of continuing to, you know, work on these personal narratives and also, you know, really just continue to engage with uh, critical self-reflection um, and just be, you know, just have some cultural humility. Like we all have, you know, room to grow and expand and, and just uh, be better versions of ourselves uh, all the time. I know that you received many, many awards and um, have written many articles and chapters, but if you could talk a little bit about your work in your writings and specifically one that you is near and dear to your heart. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, you know, writing is part and parcel um, of my job. It's not you know, I, I was listening to Taylor just in front of me and I can just, you know, feel that she loves so much what she does. Um, writing is part of my job, I'm not gonna lie to you. Um, but I do very much enjoy that part, but it, it just, you know, I have to work at it. Um, and so, you know, I've been very fortunate that um, a couple of articles have um, had the opportunity to be in books that were well received. Um, I had another couple of articles that um, the article was in the first issue of the first volume of a brand new journal. And so I've been very fortunate to have good placement. Um, and, you know, but it's also been a little challenging because my work doesn't fit into, um, I'll just say, you know, like I said, my profession is very white. Um, and the journals uh, then have white males that run them. And so they're very into quantitative uh, data science and things of that nature, and that's just not what I do. So, you know, I had difficulty on one end. I've always had to kind of justify a lot of my work with these uh, traditional venues. Um, and then I just had to decide and then uh, to go a little bit left, right, and go into some of these uh, newer venues um, they're starting up, I'm starting up, let's work together. Um, and as part of that, you know, I did have to do some education with my administration because they'll say, hey, what is this journal? And then I have to, you know, have that personal story and that personal pitch ready and say, you know, this is why this journal is important and this is why this is the best place for this piece. Um, and I think one of my favorites, um, when I was still at Illinois, I did a uh, profile it was a research study um, 
after the Civil Rights Act and, you know, when universities were still uh, trying to integrate uh, and they were integrated on paper, but they were still not integrated in practice. So in the early 1970s, specifically 1970 through 1972, there were 40 black and brown graduate students that went through the school that I was currently teaching in. And I was able to go through uh, the archives uh, and the archives contained um, essentially report cards that didn't have the letter grade, um, but it would have like the professor's uh, comments and thoughts on the students. And very long story short, um, I'm sure you ladies won't be shocked that the comments for the black and brown students um, were horrendous um, and the comments for the white students were just, you know, glowing. And so that's really what that article was about. And I was able to interview quite a few um, of those students. And when I did this work, it was roughly about 40 years after they had graduated. And, you know, interestingly enough, some of them would not talk to me uh, because they were still upset about how they were treated 40 years earlier. Um, so that's really my favorite to date because I think it really speaks to um, I think what a lot of us go through in undergrad and graduate school and Hannah, I heard you speaking to Dr. Bryan and talking about you finally felt uh, seen, right? And I think a lot of us go through our academic careers um, and we, we, we feel the same way, right? And so to see these 40 students from 40 years ago um, and see what they accomplished, right? So I, I remember one gentleman in particular, he said, I was in the military. He said, I'm a black man in America. There's nothing this school can do to me that I haven't already done or hasn't already been done. And he said he was going to get this degree. And, you know, most of the 40 people went on to do such amazing things. So it was really, you know, it was great to be able to do that history and really tell that story. But it was also um, really gratifying to see you know, that they were, you know, they were just doing their thing, right? And so that, that, I think that's a lesson for all of us, that even if we are in places that, you know, are not necessarily built for us, um, don't support us in the ways that we would like to be supported, um, it doesn't detract from what it is that we can do later on. So that was, um, I think, my favorite, and it really got me into kind of historical research as well. I have a quick question. Um, so as far as the, I guess, pushback, you can call it, that you got at the beginning of your career and when you were in Illinois, what's the difference, I guess, between when you were there and then now being in South Carolina, being at the University of South Carolina? I know mm -hmm. our state doesn't really have a good rep as far as being progressive and things of that sort, but has anything changed since you um, have been teaching the courses that you teach and mm -hmm. the and maybe the ages of the students may play a part. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, um, well, I mean, the programs are comparable to a degree, right? Um, and, you know, there are good, great students in Illinois. There are wonderful students here in South Carolina, and I'm teaching the same classes. And, you know, so far, people are, the students are really um, interested and engaged. I have not had that same type of pushback. Um, but you know, I don't know if you, you all are watching uh, Lovecraft Country um, and on HBO and they're talking about the sundown towns. Um, so I was living in central Illinois and Illinois is one of the 
uh, states with the highest number of sundown towns. So that was always like a palpable burden for me. Um, and so when I got here, because I'm originally from New Jersey, so I'm originally from a very, you know, diverse place. And then I went to a very not diverse place. And then I get to Columbia and I'm like, oh my God, they're black and brown people that I can actually see. Um, so to say that I think I'm much more comfortable um, as a person, um, as an educator. And, um, you know, and then I think another thing um, that's part of this uh, process is that I have tenure now. Um, so I have a little bit more, how do I say, I have, I have a little bit more autonomy and I can, I can push back the pushback that I receive in a way that I could not do, you know, before. Um, and I think the other thing is, you know, I'm very uh, grateful and very fortunate to be in this endowed chair position that is actually named after a black woman. Um, and so that's really rare uh, in academia, but it's, you know, like a unicorn position in my discipline. And so I was recruited and brought down here with the expectation that I would teach these classes and that I would do, uh, continue the work that I had been, I had already been doing um, and just expand that work. And so, you know, to that end, um, it's really been amazing um, to work in the name of Augusta Baker um, and just have the resources and autonomy. So it's been, it's been a really good year um, despite COVID and this whole working from home thing. Um, but just, you know, and, and working with people who want to see this type of um, programming and, and education and to be on a campus where there are associate deans of uh, diversity, equity, inclusion, um, it's, it's, it's been a great change. And it's, so those are kind of like the main differences um, to, to your point. Um, but yeah, it's been, a, it's been a good run and it's, I think we're just getting started. Absolutely. And I know you touched on it earlier about representation and how it's lacking in the field, a lot of the fields that mm -hmm. you are in. But can you just talk a little bit about why representation is important and how um, we can foresee um, diversifying these diverse fields? Um, mm -hmm. Because I feel like for us, specifically Black students, a lot of us see only or we can envision us being in roles that we see so we see the traditional yeah. roles and it's like okay it's a b or c that's the yes. pipeline but yeah. how do we diversify that yeah um so to say that you know when i initially went to college i wanted to be a pharmacist um, and you know quickly found out that my math and science abilities were not going to allow that um, and so I kind of backed into my profession. Um, I was fortunate that I had a scholarship that uh, went across the university so I could just change majors. And I had a work study job in a library um, on the campus. And there was a black librarian there, uh, Mrs. Thelma Tate. Um, and I, so I was what, in my early twenties. And that, that was the first time I've ever seen a black librarian. So I didn't know black librarians existed. So that was never, an option for me because I didn't know that that was even something that was open to me, right? So because of her, uh, I went from undergrad and I went into the library program uh, that I graduated from. And so just to your point, if we don't see, we can't be what we don't know. Um, and this idea of, you know, really um, 
diversifying all fields. And, and so not only is it important for us to know what we can be, um, you know, we want our students and our children and our friends and family and whoever, um, we all deserve to see ourselves wherever we go, right? So whether it's, you know, in the hospital, you know, to be uh, in the health professions, whether it's in the library, whether it's on campus with the professors, um, we deserve to see ourselves because we all bring so much to the table. So, you know, I think representation matters for lots of reasons. And then what I try to get across is that not only do we have to work on the representation, um, we have to go multiple steps further, right? Because I, you know, one of the things that we talk about in my profession is, you know, it's, it's not that hard to recruit. Um, it's much harder to retain. Um, so if, you know, we get someone uh, into one of these disciplines um, and they have a rotten experience because they're being microaggressed and, you know, they're the only uh, person of, only visible person of color uh, in, in a room or, you know, they're uh, spoken down to and told how articulate they are, but, you know, you can't do that. They're not going to stay. Why should they? Um, so I hope that answers uh, what you were getting at, but just, you know, the representation means so much um, and we have to make sure that it, it means even more. Absolutely. And I know you talked about being the Adjuster Maker Endowed Chair, but um, right here, right now, talking, having the opportunity to talk to you because of one reason to raise money for the One Create One Carolina campaign. And so I know that many scholarships and funds, um, as well as programs, are benefiting from this campaign that specifically um, benefits Black students. And so if you can attest to your experiences, why campaigns like this are important, um, would be great. Yeah, so, um, you know, the work that I do for Augusta Baker is um, based in storytelling, it's based in programming, um, is based uh, a lot in teacher education. And so whether it's classroom teachers, whether it's librarians, whether it's school librarians, um, we need, again, to um, diversify those professions and have greater representation. So a large part of what we do is provide uh, professional development uh, to teachers of color um, and we try to recruit. We're trying to get more um, students of color into the, the bachelor's program, the master's program, our PhD program. And you know we have to continue to create the environment we wanna be in. And so I heard uh, Dr. Bryan say, you know, in the next few years, how many more students of color, how many more, how many more black students will come to the campus. And we want this campus to be the best place it can be. We want them to be able to uh, see themselves in the programs and, you know, have, have the freedom to change your major however many times because part of that campus experience, part of this uh, higher ed experience is learning um, and then figuring out you know, to your, your point earlier, Hannah, there's only, you know, they may come to campus thinking there's only one of three things that I can do. Um, and they go to an event with you or, you know, they stumble on a class with uh, Dr. Jenkins or something. And it's just like, you know, the, the world just opens up. Um, and so we want to be able to prepare for that. And so we have to uh, make sure that this is going to be uh, the most welcoming and uh, comfortable place uh, for our brothers and sisters uh, so we can continue to uh, expand and do all of this good work.
Yes, and I know you've probably gotten this question many times about the current situations and uh, the environment that we're in right now and how your knowledge about social justice throughout the years and you've been speaking about it and advocating for it before it became yeah. a trend again, if that yes. makes sense. Yes. Oh, yes. And so yes. how, how has that been for you seeing um, these issues in the spotlight right now? I know, um, and I saw Tanea earlier this week, you text, or you tweeted about like performative allyship rather than mm -hmm. like true genuine allyship and making sure the actions match what you're mm -hmm. saying. So if you mm -hmm. could speak to that a little bit. Yeah, um, you know, I've been doing this work over 20 years and I remember distinctly, I was at a conference in 2014 um, and I always say that, you know, equity, diversity and inclusion um, is trendy like every five, six, seven years and the kind of like the pendulum swings back and forth. And in 2014, it was, you know, oh, we have to talk about diversity. And this woman said to me, um, well, how do we you know, ride this wave and be trendy, or, you know, and address the trend. And I'm like, no, ma'am, um, <laughs> I've been doing this work for over a decade at that point. Um, so when you all decide that this is no longer trendy, I will still be doing this work. And, you know, with current events, you know, I, I really, really, really want this to be the time uh, that's different. Um, the pessimist in me, I, I don't know if we're there. Um, I, but I, I do see that there are uh, some changes and that there's some awareness that we didn't have before. Um, but I don't think this is the end of it. Um, and so, you know, when George Floyd uh, was killed, I mean, I was as depressed as the next person and, you know, couldn't leave the house. I was scared to leave the house, you know, just because you, you just you, you mourn. Right. And you feel that grief and that weight. Um, and people started messaging me on social media. Um, well, I need something to read. I don't understand. And I need something to read for my children. And I'm like, listen, I don't have the mental capacity to be your personal concierge right now. Um, so I kind of backed off of this kind of personal recommendation thing. And I wound up creating this site um, that had, uh, has maybe about 175 resources just on anti-racism. Um, and I just started pushing out the link, right? So that was what I could do uh, for that. But the work that I'm doing now and the immediate aftermath of this is talking about why a reading list isn't enough, right? Because we're seeing a lot of people, they're reading um, how, to, how to Be an Anti-Racist by uh, Dr. Kendi. They're re uh, reading White Fragility by Dr. D'Angelo. And that's all they're doing. And it's like, that's not even close, right? So what are you going to do to move this forward. And so that's where my discussions and my presentations have been uh, all summer. And you know, to this trendiness, like I'm really busy now, um, it, it'll drop off. Um, but I hope that when it drops off, we'll have more people um, that are in it for the long haul and you know, are gonna ride past that trendiness and will want to take my classes, uh, take classes in critical race theory, um, you know, and, and really, try to um, have some action, you know, past, you know, a, an occasional book club read. So that's kind of where I'm at um, at the moment. It's, it's, it's definitely strange times. And I know you, you touched on a little bit on, you know, that it goes up and then it goes down mm -hmm. and it goes up mm -hmm. and goes down. 
But during these times, and I too have seen, especially on social media, everyone putting out the resources. So the resources are available to read, become more knowledgeable. But what would you say is that next step? So I know for many, especially on a student level, I just say, especially um, to my uh, white peers and my white friends, it's all about not just trying to engage in racial conversations with me, because of course, you're going to try to say what I want, you know, like, you know what I'm about. So you're going to disagree with me, but Mm -hmm. about how you can have those conversations with your other white friends and your other Mm -hmm. circles that Mm -hmm. might not look like me and might um, offer more perspectives to the table and for you to stand your ground. And to me, that I mean, that's real allyship. Like, yes, you're going to be my friend and say, if I like oranges, you like oranges, you know, but if you go to (laughs) another group that likes apples, why do you like oranges? Why do you think, Mm -hmm. you know? And so what do you have any advice on more things that we can do. I know that especially for students, we do not have all the funds in the world and especially during right now, um, some of us choose to march and some people, I feel like they feel pressured to where if I'm not mm-hmm. out on the state house or not marching, then I'm not mm-hmm. doing my job or I'm not yeah. um, advocating like I should. And so yeah. can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Um, you know, and I think, you know, the last time I was really handy, um, and I had said that then and I say it now, you know, there is no one right way uh, to be an ally or an advocate. Um, Everyone can't march, um, you know, but maybe you can donate money or maybe you can write to your uh, elected leaders or maybe you can organize a food drive. Like there's so many different things that we can do. Um, I encourage people to find what's comfortable for you and, and what makes sense for you. Now, in terms of um, your question about your friends, um, I think part of this is, you know, to our white friends, am I your only black friend? Because if, if, if I am, then that's a problem, right? And that's what we, that's where you need to start. Like, what do your circles look like? What personal, professional, academic, otherwise, you have to be conscious about expanding your horizons, because that's the only way you're going to get to know different people and different experiences and, and begin to value other cultures uh, and things like that. Um, you know, and I, I still have to have conversations with my white faculty colleagues. Um, so I know what you all are going through um, with, with your colleagues and peers. And, you know, I tell them, you know, if you see something, say something, right? And I'm not saying you have to get into like a fisticuffs and have to have like these raging arguments. But if you see that someone is being abusive to me in a meeting, or you see that someone's microaggressing me, all you have to do is say, okay, enough, right? You don't have to get into a race debate, but all you have to do is interrupt, right? So there are different ways to do that. Now, there are times when I need you to do more than interrupt, but we can, we can work towards that. Um, and I'm writing a piece now for um, a trade publication, and I'm talking about just this topic, and I'm encouraging people to stand in the gap. And so this idea of you as an ally, and hopefully uh, you'll become an accomplice um, and get to that next level, I need you as a a uh, non-Black, Indigenous, or person of color to use your privilege to stand between me and this type of abuse. Um, I need you to uh, educate yourselves. And I need you to be able to uh, just be willing to give up even a fraction of your privilege and power, right? And again, this is all going to be very fluid. Like you don't have to, you know, stand between me and someone 24 hours a day. Um, 
but when it counts, you know, like we saw the, the wall of moms, uh, the white women in Portland, Oregon. Now that had a, another backstory, but they were literally standing in the gap. They were standing in between the protesters and the police, right? So how are you going to use what you have? Um, not, I don't want to say so much to protect us, um, but to allow us an opportunity to step forward right and and share that power and you know the proverbial you know give us a seat at the table type of thing thank you so much for all of the knowledge that you dropped and i know <laughs> i had some uh, personal personal circumstances that i just needed advice about so i hope that helped everyone else yeah. too but that really helped me yes and thank you for everything thank you for all that you're doing within all of your role um truly are inspiring and please go and understand that all that you're doing is not going unnoticed. So we really do appreciate uh, it. I appreciate it. And I'm, I'm very glad to be here with you ladies. And please keep in touch and keep up the great work. Yes, thank you thank so you. much. And if I don't know if you have donated already, but if you haven't, if you could please donate whatever that is, whether that is your network and just mm -hmm. marketing the podcast with Dawn or even as many little or as much funds as you would like. Um, I tell our always challenge students like myself, like, a dollar goes a long way and so <laughs> whatever you can everything is greatly appreciated absolutely all right thank you so much thank, thank you me. have a great day you too bye-bye